Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And welcome to White Wine Questions. I'm the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is a doctor turned reality TV star, turned author, turned podcaster, turned YouTuber, and now government-appointed mental health ambassador. He's on a mission to make a genuine difference for the young people in the UK. Born in Carmarthen in Wales, he was working as an A&E doctor in University Hospital Lewisham in 2018 when the producers of Love Island found him on Bumble, a dating app, and asked him to apply for the show. Before you could say, I've got a text, he'd moved into the villa and remains one of the island's most memorable contestants. But despite his ever-growing profile and social media following, he went straight back to the NHS front lines and juggled his media work alongside serving as an A&E doctor throughout the COVID-19 pandemic until last year when he finally made the difficult decision to press pause and focus on another huge development in his life. In 2021, following a huge amount of campaigning, the young people's mental health, following the tragic loss of his younger brother, he was personally appointed by the then Prime Minister to serve as the Youth Mental Health Ambassador to 10 Downing Street. And ever since, well, he's been working tirelessly to help a generation of young people better look after their mental health. So much so that he's written a brand new book. It's called A Better Day, Your Positive Mental Health Handbook, which is filled with practical techniques and tools to support children from the ages of 10 up. It's hugely valuable. Let's hear more about it. He was last on the show in 2019. Boy, oh boy, has a lot happened since then. Let's say hello to Dr. Alex George. Oh, hey, Kate, that all lovely introduction. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so much has happened. It's so it's so weird. And I think about things that happened, honestly, only 18 months or two years ago. In my head, they feel like a I decade. Know. When I think back to like 2017, 2018, like pre-pandemic, that feels genuinely like 10, 15 yeah. years and ago. And you, you, you certainly must feel like a different person because the, the changes in your life have been constant, huge and full of momentum. Yeah. <laughs> good and bad. <laughs> it's been yeah. a bit. Yeah, I, I think that's the right way to put it. I think it is good and bad. It's been wild. I think we were talking about it earlier on. I think it's been it's been very odd thinking about my life before then to after then to pre to go back to A and E to pre pandemic to then this horrible thing that came and and obviously in my life now. I mean, I, I don't work in A and E anymore. I stopped about a year ago to focus on the mental health work, but. Yeah, I mean, the more I do of it, the more I realise it's needed. The more that I realise it's needed, the more I feel that I need to do more. So it's a funny little side. I know. And I'm actually, as this podcast, as this episode goes out, I'm going back to university as well, start studying masters. So what? I'm back to school. Yeah, I'm doing, doing a public, yeah, public mental health masters at King's. So um, I'm literally back to school the rest of them. Are you really? Congratulations, Alex. I mean, you do like to, to like kind of, you know, you do Thank like you. To, to heap your plate, don't you? You are something of a workaholic. <laughs> And and actually, I must point out that the the mental health ambassador role that you've taken on as 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 a as a government advisor is unpaid. So I salute you for that because it's eating a lot of your time, and that's one of the reasons you had to step away from A and E. 
Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you for thank you for saying that. Um, I think sometimes people think that I'm like paid from the government. I actually wouldn't take a penny, even to the point where the only thing I could say I get from the role is a cup of coffee at Downing <laughs> Street, which I think is probably fair. I think that's allowed. But I won't even travel and expenses and stuff, and even the degree I'm funding myself because I because I it, for me it really is a mission. I, I feel it that way. It's a mission, you know, for my life. I that I really want to do. It's personal for me. I, mean, I want to do this and give it my best shot and feel you know, feel happy with that. And I know it's a real privilege. You know, I had to make that decision between A&E and the role, because quite frankly, there's no way I could do both because I couldn't afford to. You know, it is a balancing act. I think when you talked about heaping the plate, I think that's the thing that I'm trying to learn. I'm getting better at it, is balancing things because I don't want to burn out. I can't help the kids if I burn out. Well, herein lies the rub, right? You've got to practice what you preach. And you are close to burning the candle at both ends because you're quite right. The more you do, the more you realise is needed to be done. And we are dealing with a generation of young people. And I speak as the mother of a 14-year-old. Um, and we were just talking before we, we hit the record button about maybe this year, um, these kids will get a full academic year because my son hasn't had a full academic year at secondary school yet. And that's the experience of so many. And we don't know what the hangover is from the pandemic in terms of their mental health because we're only just feeling it. But thankfully, we are alive to it in a way that probably no other generation ever has been. Would you agree? Yeah, and I feel I think there's actually a lot of reasons to be optimistic. I mean, if you look at the numbers, there's a lot of reasons to be pessimistic. We've got half a million kids yeah. with a waiting time, waiting lists for mental health services. That's nearly six Wembley stadiums of kids who need help for their mental health. That numbers, that, and that's ones that are waiting for help, let alone the rest that actually are struggling. But but there's an important but. I think the attention that mental health and po- in a positive sense, so mental illness, mental health, and mental well-being, there are distinct differences. The attention of those things are having now is greater than ever. And I think I am a big believer that the more you raise awareness of something, the more people are educated about something, the more that they actually then go on to make changes in the world to actually support that issue. So, you know, if we educate kids at school about mental health, how to look after themselves, teach them about mental illness and what to do when they're struggling, when they become adults and maybe future politicians, they will care about the issue and realize that it's something Mm. we do need to fund we need to invest we need to improve and you know i'm a big believer that um you know the children are the future in the sense that they really can make the changes that we need to and if we can give kids the understanding you know about these issues they'll grow up as adults that care and adults that know that mental health matters and then one of the things you were pushing for was that mental health to be pushed onto the curriculum so just in the same way that our kids do pe they then get the same amount of study time to look at their own mental well-being. That is surely a no-brainer. Surely. I mean, that's an easy, that's an easy thing to do. Is it or am I being overly simplistic? You're you're sat at the top table, you tell me, Alex. The 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 argument to do it is impossible to argue against. The practicalities are more mm. tricky. So um basic basically, you know, I think there's very few teachers out there that would say they don't want to see more well-being teaching on the curriculum. They don't want to see their children, you know, educated about mental health, supported, etc. The difficulty is you need to have resources and uh, you know, people power. You need to have enough staff to do it because you know what comes off the curriculum, what goes in, how do you create the time? You know, my 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 argument is ultimately that happy and healthy children are much more likely to be academically successful. So if you want to improve the academics, support the mental health. Look at countries in Scandinavia who actually have way higher in the league tables of academia than us. They do learn through play till the age of like ten. They do a lot more kind of building them as people before you start testing them and we're, we're way too exam heavy we're way way too assessment heavy in my opinion you know we need to rank that back and actually just you know help them develop skills as people I mean Kate how many things do you remember from school that you were taught it's not about what you were taught at school I can't remember half the stuff I was taught biology or chemistry or whatever <laughs> you should see me sat here trying to do homework with my 14 year old I'm like I'm sorry I can help you with English and that is that is it your sciences your maths it's just gone it's not what you learn at school or medical school that matters. It's how you learn. I can't remember half the stuff at med school. You couldn't ask me to tell you what we call the Krebs cycle of energy. and the, I can't remember the steps of that. But what you do is you learn how to analyze information, how to critically evaluate, how to do research, how to you know, add to your levels of knowledge and weigh up you know, um, evidence for things. That's what you learn as a, at med school, as a doctor. And equally at school, 
it's learning how to learn. But the things I think we really do need to sort of teach more at school, and again, people sometimes surprise when I say this, one of the biggest things we need to teach young people is about financial health. The number one cause of worry and stress as an adult is financial health. How many kids leave school and understand even what an ISA is or what a savings account is or how that works? But yet we yeah. don't just, we go to work to yeah. earn money. Exactly. But just let's teach kids these things because this is the future. And, and this equally social media, whether you like social media or not, it's not going anywhere. It's getting bigger and bigger. Everyone's jobs, even doctors now are on social media. And listen, I understand when you say, you know, when we go back to should this be on the curriculum, you say, well, it's tricky. So was rolling out a vaccine in under two years to vaccinate the world against a pandemic. But hey, guess what? We did it. You know, if, if we'd have said to you as a, as a medic, in 2018, guess what? There's a pandemic over the hill and it's coming. And in under two years, we will be rolling out a vaccination that, and you'd be going, don't be ridiculous because there's red tape in the way, there's policy, there's, but you know what? Sometimes you can get the job done when everybody comes together. Of course. And with that in mind, can I crash into your very first question? Let's do it. As well as a brand new book, and a new podcast, Stompcast, which is you walking and talking with guests, a brilliant way to just clear your mind and do a little bit of something for your mental health, as well as the youth mental health ambassador role for the government. You've also started to take your mental health awareness campaign to only fans. And I love this about you, Alex, right? You turn up where you're least expected, a la Love Island, right? Nobody expected to see an A&E doctor in Casa Amor. Um, you defy expectations in order to find new audience. And I love the way that you go around the world sort of traveling the, the path less traveled in order to get your work done. So tell me, how's that ended up with you knocking on the door of number 10? And also about the other times in your life when you've surpassed or defied other people's expectations to kind of disrupt a place or a space to chart your path through life? Well, I think, uh, um, you know, the point around OnlyFans, you know, what the re the whole reason we were interested about that space is that so many people that maybe are on there as consumers or people that are actually creating content, they can be struggling with their mental health too. And actually, if someone's on there and, you know, we know that things like, I mean, you know, OnlyFans is used for lots of different reasons, but I guess the high profile stuff is whether people are showing like uh, modeling pictures, they talk about porn things on there. Porn addiction can be a really big thing. So I wanted to take mental health to the space that people are in. So mental health support should be wherever people are. And there isn't really any support on there. So that was why I wanted to create content. Obviously, the, the content I was making was free to access, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you're not charging for this. People don't expect it there. No, this is the place that where, you know, if, if you if you want to own your your um, image, a lot of women, for example, have gone there, made a huge amount of money by serving out content that that they feel they can charge for, but it's predominantly them in various states of undress, right? That's kind of what it's known for. I know it does lots of other stuff as well. So when, who came up with the idea to, for, to infiltrate OnlyFans? <laughs> what was the reaction? Because I can't imagine it was on anybody's sort of strategy or key, key yeah. path. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was, uh, it's one of those things where like, well, you know, why don't we do something different here? Why don't we look at this? I mean, some people are like, oh my gosh, and the typical reaction of gosh, why is it going on there? But when people look at it, you know, actually, if you actually stop and think about it, it, it makes sense. And uh, and I'm I'm never I'm never afraid to try. And I think in life, I'd like to think I fail a lot, right? I do. I have a lot of things that go wrong and things that I don't get right. Okay, but I always I would always like to think that when I look back on my life, I can always say I I, I gave it my best shot. And I went. I wasn't afraid. Um, and you know the same with number ten. I mean, look, I I spent six or seven months um researching everything out there in terms of what support was available for mental health, what the issues, what the problems are. I spent a good few years actually working with charities and stuff before that anyway. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to start a campaign. I'm going to try and go and speak to the Prime Minister. I'm going to tell him what I think the problems are in this country. And it's a bit of a wild idea. I think there's no way this will happen. And I launched the campaign um, the 2nd of January um, with a post on Instagram. And literally, I think it was 10 days later, at number 10 Downing Street calling me, being like, let's have a meeting. And then the cabinet meetings, all this kind of stuff. And obviously, you never expect to go to number 10 and be like, right, you know, you're going to be in this role. We want you to come and work with the you know, charity sector, work with the NHS sector, work with the government sector and education and look at what we can improve. You just don't think that's ever going to happen, do you? It's it's kind of, it's wild. It's wild. Your post would end up being put on the Prime Minister's desk and he then decides 
to do something about it. I mean, just that very sentence that you just sort of, you know, very casually flew out there of your mouth because I, so, you know, I, I wanted to ask the prime minister uh, to do more. And it's like that, that you do realise that's not normal, Alex, don't you? <laughs> that's... <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I. I don't think I'm particularly normal anyway. It's fine. I, I. I've accepted that. I think we're none of us are. Are we? I just have this big. You know. I have this. Um. I have this. I've had this really big thing since I was really little. That I have. I have a fear. Actually, I have a fear that I don't want to look back on my life and think that I didn't live it. I didn't. I mean, this has gone very deep very quickly, but. It was a real fear of mine. It, it's driven me. I don't know where it really comes from, but I don't want to regret in my life that I didn't go for things. And I think people are so afraid to fail so much that it prevents them from actually living their lives. And 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 I, I have a saying that you know I, I I repeat this to myself all the time to kind of make sure I don't be afraid. You know that you learn far more from your failures than your successes. And I and that's what you know. And again, we talk about I know we talk about the book Better Day, but that's the whole. That's a big part of the premise of that. You know, don't be afraid to learn, to fail, to grow, and all that kind of stuff. And just why not? So, what was the worst that could happen? I don't go and see the prime minister. It doesn't happen. But we managed to still raise loads of awareness around mental health. But so much, so much of what you've done has involved great risk. Like, I mean, for example, I know you didn't apply to Love Island, but when they came knocking on your door and they saw you on Bumble. A colleague egged you on and you said yes. Now, that, that, now that is, that's a risk, right? You, by, going, by putting yourself through med school, you would have accrued huge student debt. You would still be clearing that down, I would imagine, at that stage in your career. It could have ruined you as a, in terms of your medical career. And yet you still decided to do it anyway. It was the road less travelled and the last place in the world you ever expected to find a doctor. <laughs> Yeah, I I think um, it took. I actually spent a long time thinking about it. It sounds like because you'd imagine you just go, oh yeah, I'll do it in the next week on the show. It's a long time before there was. A, trust me, there was a lot of back and forth. I also knew that you know I knew that I wasn't going to do anything that got me in a situation I couldn't practice. I mean, I, actually, it was a conversation with a, one of my consultants that kind of helped me make the decision, and um, it was something that he said to me. We were in A and E actually. We were sat in the doctor's um, where we sit to type and do our notes, and he said, "Come here." He said, look out there into that waiting room. He says, he said, everyone out there, they all have relationships. They're all family. They have gay girlfriends. They break up. They do whatever. They also, lots of those will go home. They have sex. They, they have, they're real people. In here, we're real people as well. You know, you, you're no different to anyone else. As long as you carry yourself, you know, uh, you know, and you're you're professional in terms of respecting the values and moral codes of being a doctor. That you're respectful of the people around you. Then why shouldn't you go on the show? And that was that for me genuinely was. The I was like, Do you know what? He's right. Why not? Why can't a doctor be on a dating show? Why does it matter? It shouldn't matter. No, I mean it's great. But but you know, you'd already identified. Yeah. You'd done a risk assessment. It was risky, especially in today's culture of of cancelling people. I know that you feel very strongly about this. As do I. I think we share the same view, which is people have to be allowed to make mistakes, repair those mistakes, and learn from them. Otherwise, how do we evolve? But equally. Even if you went on there and carried yourself well, you could have found yourself caught up in somebody else's cancellation nightmare that could have tarnished you. True. But I also do think, um, I don't think anyone actually truly, there's only a few people that ever actually ever truly being cancelled. And most of the time when you see people getting inverted commas cancelled, they often come back even stronger than they were before. And I think there is a huge, and thankfully, I mean, Kate, again, we've, I know that you you share this view. You know, we, we have to move past the cancel culture. And I think, you know, there's a huge backlash at the moment against that. People are sick of it, aren't they? Um, no, I, I, I completely agree with you. And I think that, you know, uh, so much of my youth was spent learning by my mistakes. And, and that, you know, that you learn from your mistakes. They are life lessons. And actually, if we stopped calling them mistakes and started thinking of them as a small slice of life education, we might... We might frame it all differently. I don't know, but I just worry for young people, especially when everything that they do has some kind of digital footprint. So, so much of, of what you do is recorded now in a way that it never was when I was a kid yeah. and certainly was probably way less so when you were. I know I've yeah. got a few years on you, sadly. Well, I think I think the point, the thing that I'm afraid of, to be honest, is that if you look at ignorance, and ignorance is often the breeding ground for things like racism, sexism, uh, you know, all the kind of bullying and bad things that come from, from, from ignorance. 
cancel culture doesn't tackle that it breeds mm-hmm. it because if you don't allow people to say do you know what i made a mistake there i'm sorry and pay the price for, for being sorry and then be allowed to you know improve and carry on then you're going to breed ignorance people won't ask mm-hmm. questions people it will it will suppress that and actually that's a more dangerous environment for young people to grow in it's really important that young people as they grow up they learn to be accountable and say do you know what I, you know, your playground, you kicked a ball and you hit the other kid in the head and, and you shouldn't have done it. You go and say, look, do you know, what? I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have been aggressive with that ball hit in the head. I am really sorry. What, what should we do? Like forevermore say that kid is a bad mm-hmm. child. That person, that child for the rest of his life is a bad child. He'll never be allowed to play football again or be in the playground. No, we go, thank you for saying sorry. It's good you said sorry to that child. Be very careful in what you're doing. This is what you need to learn from it and then move on. Yeah. Well said. So listen, when else have you taken a path less travelled and what have been the outcomes? I think the other one for me, and I, and I, and I say this because I think, and, I, and I hope it relates to those who are dyslexic out there who, who have uh, neuro, neuro, neurodiverse like my, myself, um, you know, writing a, writing a book, to be honest, is probably one of the things that I was like, I'm like, honestly, when I wrote the first adult book, I was like, what am I doing? Like, how am I doing this? I, you know, this is, this feels so wrong for me to be doing it because it's so out of my comfort zone it's something I've struggled with it's been something that's been a source of discomfort for me and I feel like in many ways you know people and there's lots there are other dyslexic authors who have done the same but actually going against and going do you know what I'm going to learn how to adapt and be able to do this and bring in support and other people that can help me with the writing to to still be able to do what, what many would think would be impossible when I grew up I thought there's no way on this planet I could ever mm. write a book I wouldn't want to I couldn't do it but you can do it and I think and I hope for anyone listening that that is dyslexic as well don't let these things stop you like you can be a doctor you can be you can be a lawyer you can be whatever you want to be you can write books you don't let it stop you just bring in the support you need to help you through it you know it's not always easy but you can do it I see it as a superpower because if you think about it this way you know our brains you're not you're not disadvantaged in a sense by being dyslexic and I, I, and I mean this in sense of life broad more broadly than say what we think about in writing because in many ways that you you just use your brain in different ways so you know the research has shown that those who are dyslexic use a lot of the part of their brain that's associated with creativity so sometimes things we think are a weakness realize what what strengths they might be in that the potential in that and actually if we all thought the same and all set came at things in the same way well, well, that's that's no good for anybody. We all, we everybody needs to have. Boring. Well, no, but everybody needs to have their own path in, don't they? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's yes, boring, but also yeah. unproductive and <laughs> unconstructive. Um, and you're right, it is a superpower and and a tool. And that takes me very nicely to my next question for you, Alex. Yeah. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're working uh, to help young people 
develop the tools that they need to deal with the difficulties, the challenges, the tragedies and hardships that life can present. But I wonder if you would mind drilling down into your own experiences and sharing what tools you've had to call upon to get through some of your own biggest challenges and difficulties and how those tools have helped. And I thought maybe first and foremost, could we start with the professional you and the realities of life and death as a, an A&E doctor? Yeah, I mean, I find it fascinating that as Brits, we're pretty bad about at talking about death. We often avoid it. We pretend it doesn't happen. You know, and I'm not trying to be negative here, but we all actually, I think it's I, I'm actually going to say it's a real positive. Right. We all will die. Okay, and that means that the time that we have is special, it's finite, and that finite amount of time is beautiful. It makes moments that we have, whether that's a birth of a new child, whether that's something amazing you achieved, it makes it special because it's not infinite. You know, we don't know how long we have. And I think that is that is that is the amazing thing about about death and about life. I think with in A and E, I mean, I obviously have been kind of literally brought, you know, I guess my attention has been brought to death quite a lot, more so in the pandemic than ever. I think, you know, the number of people we saw passing away, it was, it was horrific. I think more what was difficult in the pandemic was um, was the fact that we couldn't, when you're dying, you know, the dream is to have, you know, your family around you, your friends around you, to feel that sense of passing to be a moment, you know, the final moments to be in some ways special of your life. And the pandemic robbed people of that. It robbed it. And they also not only robbed them in their passing, but look at what happened, you know, for example, when my brother passed away, we were only allowed 12 people in the funeral. We all had to sit, sit two metres apart. You know, that, I cannot explain how, and, and other, I know a lot of people have shared the same experience, but how horrendous that is. Um, I just found that really, really difficult because, I mean, you can't even fit main family members in the 12, to be honest, between like the uncles and there's people that had to stand outside who should have been in there and uh, you know that that stuff is really difficult but you know going back to the point around uh, you know being an A&E doctor you've got to learn to switch off I mean the biggest tool that I learned being a doctor and coping with it all is you've got to switch off um, you've got to be able to come home and know that you did your best there that you you know that you really have tried to give that patient everything you could. And when you come home, you have to protect that time. And yeah, you do probably become a little bit blunted to things. But I think that's probably quite important because if I came home every night crying and destroyed by what I see in the daytime, I wouldn't be a very good doctor and you wouldn't want me to be your doctor. You want me to be able to be measured, calm and focused. You know, you come out and see, you see one patient and maybe it's a really difficult or really bad case. Maybe not just about death, it's just something that's really affected you. You've got to be able to go in and see the next patient. So there is an element of being able to kind of switch and be able to compartmentalise, but also remember when you need to talk. Um, we've got better and better in the hospitals now and we debrief a lot more. So like if it's a difficult case, we'll sit down with a consultant or other colleagues and just talk about what's happened. I think that's really important, like offloading what you've experienced. God, yeah, offloading and shared knowledge as well, you know. But let me ask, you know, if you're able to compartmentalise, and I really understand that. I have a brother and a niece who are both firefighters and they have to do the same. Um, they see some awful things in a, in a day's work or a night's work and then have to come home and function as part of a family. So you have coping mechanisms. But how do you manage your own grief when, for example, it's your brother who died way too young, way too soon, and who has lit something within you, this fire that you have to help prevent other young people taking the same course of action that he did. So how, do, how does that, how does Dr. Alex differ from Alex George? Well, I think, um, you know, like my brother passing, and especially, you know, as he took his own life, it, you know, there's all sorts of complexities in that and guilt and things and anger and frustration that you naturally feel. Um, I think it, it's been bringing every tool that I possibly could, you know, from, from stuff like simple stuff like nature, like from walking from to music to creativity to even stuff like medication you know, i take medication for anxiety I my mean, anxiety levels have been much higher have since the past um therapy has been huge for me the way i see it is that you know you've got all these tools you know in your toolbox right and, and it's kind of like pieces of uh, jigsaw and a puzzle they all come together to make a bigger picture and that's what i talk about um you know 
how mental health and by mental health that includes you know ill health good health and everything in between when you're talking about maintaining your mental health you are talking about using all the little things out there that are going to impact it you know, from the sleep to exercise movement topping up that cup of the things you enjoy finding a passion and purpose surrounding yourself with good people and in many ways when you get through hard times in life those similar things are important and you know when Cleo passed away I remember in the weeks afterwards I was genuinely just trying to get out of bed have a shower and walk outside so going back to the, it really stripped me back there almost so then I had to build back up I need to like you know bring in all those things in my routine again slowly but surely and in some ways it made me really reflect on how important fundamental things are sleep is pretty damn important you know, there's one thing you're going to do to improve your overall health to live longer to live happier to live healthier and the more that we learn how important these things are and we start using them in the good times as well as the bad I think the better our overall health will be. But again, education, got to teach kids about this. You know, they don't, you don't just bore them with the knowledge no. of how important it is and just saying, oh, go to bed, you know, it's good for you. You need to teach people so that in the good times, the bad times, and when you're grieving, probably more important than ever. I mean, when you're grieving, you need to sleep. Your brain is drained. It's exhausted. It's, it's, it's been through a trauma. It needs to rest. So sleep's really important, you know. Mm-hmm. The biggest two things for me, me was nature and talking being in nature being outside made me feel connected with the world when i felt disconnected and um i felt talking talking is just so powerful getting the right therapist is a, it's it's almost like a whole uh, other world of dating in so many ways because you've got to find the right chemistry you've got to spark with somebody you've got to feel that a you're heard and that b whatever happens in those sessions it's going to benefit you you have to believe that it's going to work so I would always encourage young people that if you are going to find a talking therapy and that therapist isn't quite right for you, don't give up. Don't say, oh, therapy's not for me. Just keep going because it's a bit like dating. You're not going to you're not going to click with everybody. Would that be something that you would advocate? I cannot advocate more for that. I've, I've had a few different therapists and I, I kind of say to people, look, think of it as speed dating mm-hmm. a little bit. You know, you've got to you got to meet a few different people until you find the right person for you. And the other thing I would say as well, I'd add to this, don't think that you're looking for a friend. Yeah. OK, there's an important distinction to make. You need to you need to be with someone, a therapist that you feel comfortable and you have a connection with to share and open up. But you also are there. It's important to remember you're there for therapy. So it needs to have a therapeutic effect. Mm-hmm. So sometimes people go with therapists and they really get on with them, but it doesn't actually help them break down the issues. There's a fine balance to find. So I would think about it in that way. With no judgment. The, the lack of judgment's huge, isn't it? But someone that can actually genuinely help you work through things. And the important thing I say to people as well, I think what holds people back from going to therapists is they, well, there's two big things I've told again and again by therapists actually firstly is people always say i don't know if i'm bad enough am i unwell enough do i am i bad enough to deserve therapy right i actually genuinely believe and this is a privilege i say this and i'm very well aware that this would be a privilege but i believe everyone should have therapy sessions because we all every single person could benefit from thinking a little bit about how they think how they process and how they deal with things you know so therapy i think would be brilliant everyone to experience so there's no such thing as not being bad enough for therapy no one is not bad enough or too good or whatever it's brilliant and the second point that i'd say um uh, that they say about uh, therapy is people often think that they're going to be like dissected judged and pulled apart really what you get back is what you put in and only you control what you put into it so if you want to take it slow and it takes three sessions to talk about something or you back go back probably lean in you lean out kind of thing that's fine or you might be someone that opens up really quickly but you're not going to be taught, like any good therapist will not be picking you apart that's just really not what therapists are designed to do so give it a try if it doesn't work out exactly as that case same with doctors same with gps if it's not working out and the relationship the professional relationship that you developed that kind of doctor-patient relationship or the therapist-therapist and person relationship that you develop then if that doesn't work then then find someone else don't give up because it can be fun if you find that right therapist it can change your life it really can and you know some people listening who maybe are a little bit cynical around um how to better support your mental health might think all right so nature sleep and speak to a therapist well genius you know but actually 
Yeah, because it does sound like, oh, really? Never thought, never thought of that. But actually, it's not until you're low and you take yourself out for a walk and you breathe, you breathe, right? You breathe, you try to clear your head or you are then in therapy and you take what you've discussed in that session out on a walk with your head and you start to process it. You start to understand the value of those things and you wrap a good night's sleep around that and you, you're up and running. You're on your way to a better you. And, and it does sound so simple, like walk, talk, sleep. Yeah. I mean, what's fascinating, and I think it's very interesting, is the kind of skill, I guess, or the thing that we all need to work on is actually applicating those things and sticking to those things. So, so much of work about a day for young kids is like, okay, it's clearly good for you not to be on social media too long. It can be damaging, right? But how do we how do we manage our screen time? How do we practically actually protect ourselves? It's a very different story from knowing it's good. You might, we might say, okay, uh, being in nature, is, we, of course, that's good for you. Okay, so how much time do you spend each week in nature? When do you actually go outside? How many hours do you actually spend sitting inside on your phones? In reality, if you ask those, the, those people who maybe doubt the benefits or why this is important as a conversation, if you ask them the questions, I bet you quite often you'll find out they spend four hours in the screen time. They, they're glued to the laptops. They don't spend a lot of time in nature. They don't actually um, do enough stuff for to kind of feed their own passion, their purpose. You know, this, there's so much, there's so much, I think, that we could all learn about going back to the basics. And I think that's not a negative. It's a good thing. Fundamentally, the, no, the most important thing that we all need is a purpose in life. Humans must have a purpose. Nisha, the um, psychologist, coined the kind of phrase, I guess, that um, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. And I think he was absolutely right for that. But in a positive sense, purpose is vital. The rest of well-being means nothing if you don't feel you have a purpose and why to get up in the morning. So having purpose, then I think top of the list is sleep. If you sleep well, you'll be more productive next day. You'll feel better in your mood. You'll make better food choices. You'll exercise more. Movement. Exercise can be a dangerous word because exercise, I think, is exclusion of all fantastic forms of movement. So move a bit. Have decent relationships. Surround yourself with good people. Generally eat a coloured and varied uh, diet you know, of, of, of food and things. If you can tick those general boxes... I think you are well on the way to actually having as, you know, as happy or fulfilled life that you can. But it isn't always easy. It sounds easy. But putting into practice is where the skill comes in. I think that's where the discipline comes in as well. You know, making time each day to move, to walk, you know, making time for your passions, making time for spending time with people that you care about, nurturing relationships. You have to nurture relationships. You do. You absolutely do. It's investment, isn't it? Talk to me about when you, you, you say that, you know, with the passing of your brother, you were stripped back to the very basic core of who you are. And I, 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 I think that when you're in that kind of traumatic grief, because it's traumatic in as much as he, he was way too young, to you, there was no expectation around him not being here any longer. You become almost a husk of yourself, don't you? And you have to start slowly bolting yourself back together. So using all of what we've just discussed, in what order of importance did you start to apply all of those tools? Do you know what, honestly, the first few days afterwards, I, well, for days I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't think of anything. I, I just felt a shell, I think is a good way of putting it. And, you know, when it came to rebuilding, it literally, for me, and, and people who have experienced severe depression, I'm sure can relate, literally going and brushing your teeth is a start, physically eating a meal is a start uh showering wearing clean clothes those were the fundamental but and it sounds people like oh, seriously but no that that was a mountain to climb in those first few weeks and then I, and I got to the point where i could dress and i could do that stuff right now i'm going to walk outside i go outside i go i'm going to walk to the end of the road and then the next day is going in going to outside a shop but then eventually so i got the courage to get into the shop and you're building small steps and it's no good going no one goes right do you know what i'm going to start i'm going to run a marathon tomorrow you know, you quickly find out you can't just run the marathon. You've got to build yourself up. And when and what grief does is it knocks you back to the point where you can you forget how to walk almost. And you've got to build yourself up into getting out of bed, walking, slowly jogging, then building up the miles. Eventually, you do that marathon. That marathon, you could imagine, is, is life, I guess, and getting back to life. And I think, you know, any time something like that happens in your, in your life, you have to go back to basics. Don't expect too much of yourself. You know, 
you, you can't go through things that are difficult and traumatic and expect your brain and your body just go, oh, do you know what then? That's fine. Let's just get on with it tomorrow. And if you do try and do that, you're in a short way to burning out. And, and that's, that's no fun thing. No. Um, you're also very mindful in those moments, I'm sure, of being there as a, as a son, as a support to your parents who were going through their own unspeakable difficulties. How do you do that? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually, I think, you know, a big part of the reason that I survived all of that is that I had a responsibility to my parents. And I think I was acutely aware. Purpose. I, I was acutely aware. Yeah, I, I, I mean, literally, my purpose in those particularly first few weeks was to keep my parents going. Um, you know, they, they were like children um, in the sense that they were taken back to, to being like children in terms of their emotional state or whatever. And my brother Elliot as well, you know, was my middle brother, so my younger brother. So really my job was to keep them going as a family and to pull them together. And I, that, that was my job. And I mean that quite literally. I used to take my mum out in the car and um, we'd drive for two or three hours with that music on so that she could kind of have a space to be upset and to talk and talk and talk and talk. And I was trying to rationalise a lot of her thoughts and guilt and, it was exhausting. It was almost like self-harm, really, you know, because I was it was damaging myself by doing it over and over again. So much of the thoughts are repetitive because they're so deeply ingrained, um, especially immediately when you're in a state of shock. It's 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 spiraling, I guess. So, yeah, my, my 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 focus was them. But, you know, in a positive sense, like it's amazing what people can get over. Like my parents um, uh, have been working um you know, do, doing campaigns. Uh, my mum started Knit for Mental Health. She's got hundreds of people knitting. They've raised 70, 80,000 towards mental health charities. Um, she she now is doing upholstery. Um, just, she does um, like decorating stuff. My dad has started tinkering with bikes. And so, they, so there's so much stuff that um, they're doing now, good things, joy they get out of life. I mean, it's a nightmare that never ends in many ways. And I think, you know, there is always going to be a part of you that will always carry it. But I think, you know, they still get joy out of, the, out of life in the world. And I think that's what I'd say to anyone who's listening is that, you know, you really can go through some pretty rough stuff and come out the other side. You know, I, I love the saying, this too shall pass. I love that saying. It does. And and I think it's also worth acknowledging as you talk about driving your mum around so she could cry. You need to feel the pain. You need to sit with it and sit through it. Because if you, grief is is love just with a different name. It's just the saddest form of it. And you'll never be, you'll never truly grieve somebody unless you've truly loved somebody. They go hand in hand. They are horrible bedfellows. Yeah, I think I've read something before that like grief is the love you had for someone that was that was stuck, that was trapped when they passed. And I think that's yeah. I kind of like that kind of thought around it. You're you're re releasing that to them, and yeah, it it is important. You know, I go I go it again. You know, as Brits, we've got to get better, kind of accepting that like with life there's death, and learn how to grieve. You know, a lot of other cultures. Yeah. Um, and societies are are better at grieving and and allow themselves the space to grieve. Um, you know, and 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 you know, my friend is um, uh, Cypriot, and uh, their family. You know, when someone passes, they have set dates and time. Not timelines is not the right word, but they have occasions over weeks and months to stop and get together, to have dinner together, to talk, to remember, to celebrate. They have celebrations of life. And in the UK, you know, one of the most difficult things is you go and have a funeral like we did with my brother. And then, you know, we've cremated and all that. And, you know, the flowers are coming, people start asking, and everyone just kind of gets over there. And that's, that's that. It's done with, you know. It feels like there's not often an opportunity to convene other than the anniversary of their death. And, and I think we just need to do a bit better out there. We do, we do try, actually, as a family. Um, my dad still struggles quite a bit. But we do try and talk about him. Yeah. Because often you can become really interested, really... Um, you can come really wrapped up with the negative part and the bad things and forget about how amazing, you know, their lives were and the good moments you have. So, you know, try and spend, if you're going to give time to the annoyance or anger or whatever you feel about why they passed or what happened, also remember to give some energy to celebrating their life. I think that that is, is a beautiful thing to think about their life. It is. And you'll, you will get to the happier memories eventually it's just a process isn't it it's exhausting it's debilitating and it is necessary yeah yeah okay my last question alex thank you for being so open with me 
I wanted to tap into um, your own, not medical history, but a doctor will always keep notes and records of a patient. And it's always about those those big moments in somebody's health history. But I want to look at your own private records in terms of your own, not medical history, but your own evolution as to who and what and how has made you the man that you are sitting before me today. So who are the change makers? Who are the people that would qualify as being noteworthy on your own personal record? Well, I think just off the back of um, what we've talked about, um, I'd have to mention uh, a consultant that I had. Um, when I, he was an amazing, amazing guy, Mr. Nigel Harrison. He sent me this in a text uh, just after my brother passed away. And I think it, it got me, generally got me through that time. Life throws us into the deep end at times. However, with the help of family and friends, we overcome even the most seemingly insurmountable challenges. And I love that quote because it's that feeling that like, together we can get through things. And, and sometimes you just have people in moments in life when you're in such a difficult situation, you just can't see a way out and they just pluck you and they, they say something or they do something. And to them, it could seem the smallest thing. But to you, it's your mm-hmm. lifeline. And that's what it was to yeah. me. Um, so thank you, Mr. Nigel Harrison, I would say. But uh, one of the biggest things I'm really grateful for, which was awful at the time, was when I was younger, um, I applied to medical school. And when you apply to medical school, you've got to go through all the uh, interviews, you've got to do separate exams, that then give you these ridiculous grades you have to get. And when it came to results day, I missed out um, from A grade in chemistry by two months oh. because my course was downgraded. And I missed out on the A. And the med school, Liverpool Medical School said, no, sorry, you missed the grades. Oh. Two marks away and my head teacher mrs griffiths um rung the i think the sub dean or whatever or deputy dean or whatever you call them uh, and said listen to me alex if you have alex there he will be the best people that you'll have in this couple i can assure you get these two marks he will be the best doctor and they didn't let me in but she said to me don't give up you've got something you really have in this you need to go again and it was brilliant because I experienced real failure and real disappointment and had to go the process of picking myself up, sorting the grades out, reapplying, doing interviews again, waiting for the results. And then eventually a year later, I got the place and I went. And I valued that place at med school, I think, more than almost anyone that was there. And you know what? I graduated with a distinction. Yeah. There's only a handful of people that got, got distinction. And it was a real, but it was a fantastic lesson. And that failure taught me so much. It made me resilient. It made me also gave me a sense of self-belief. Yeah. It's like, do you know what? Even if I miss out and I do things wrong, I can still achieve. You can fail and be the top. And I think that's that for me was something... There's something really powerful in that. It was the first time that I had a real slap back, you know, being like, oh, my gosh, this is sore. And it was sore. I remember my mum was crying, my grandmother's crying, everyone was crying. Everyone was so disappointed. The head teacher was crying. It was a real, really tough time. But that tough time led to everything else. So for me, Mrs. Griffiths, you know, backing me and pulling me up and going, do you know what? You've got this. You can do this. And it's worth you going again. Don't give up you know, how grateful am I now? Absolutely. And we all need those cheerleaders in life, don't we? Yeah, we do. I mean, it's especially, especially when often we are our own worst critics. We bully ourselves in, ourselves incessantly in our own minds. Certainly I have over the years. So sometimes you need to ask, do you know, Alex, stop telling yourself you can't do this. You can do this. Not only you can, you will do it. You'll make it. We're, we're so hungry for the quick wins that we forget that sometimes the marathon is far more rewarding than the sprint. Well, that's the whole thing of, um, you know, anything in life that's worthwhile never comes easy. I, I do believe that, you know, the best things in life you've worked for. And so much of, I, you know, you, going through med school, you think, oh, God, to get through this, got to get through that, got to do that, got to do that. I look back and look at those med school years and think that they're some of the happiest years and most amazing years of my life. But I was working incredibly hard. It was a struggle, some of it. But, you know, in that strong struggle, there's real... There's real memories, there's joy, and there's moments where you look back on and go, do you know what, I'm pretty proud of myself that I did that. So don't be afraid of a challenge, just go for things. I always, do you know what, I'd rather try and fail than never try at all. Well, you've certainly done that. I mean, let's talk about the person that made the call that found you on Bumble that thought, oh, he'd be good, a hot doctor on the... uh, on Love Island 2018. (laughs) But actually, that person has been a bit of a change maker for you because... 
it has enabled you to, to to be a doctor with probably one of the largest surgeries in Britain in terms of your platform and audience. <laughs> Absolutely. Nikita, it was, was a producer at ITV, and she found me as she was casting. And, yeah, I mean, you know, in fact, probably as arguably my biggest moment where someone has, has, has done that. And uh, Yeah, I, I, I guess how how different would life be had she not sent yeah. the message or had I not seen the message or had I not replied or I said no it's there's so many if you actually start thinking about it it's kind of crazy how many possibilities how many opportunities there were you know I nearly didn't go to the interview I then nearly said no afterwards there's so many moments in which that could have gone a different direction absolutely but you're right look at all of the opportunities that were sitting on the branches of that that you, you weren't even aware were there and how it's changed yeah. it's how it's changed you because that, that experience has changed you you're still the same professional that you were but you're doing your work in a very different way I think it's interesting isn't it because when I actually came out of the show there were certainly some doctors and people in the medical profession oh gosh this is you shouldn't be doing this what's he doing mm. and it's interesting now look what happened with the pandemic there's probably honestly I don't know five six people with reasonable sized profiles that are doctors when I came out of the show now You've got thousands and thousands of doctors providing medical teaching, advice, information online. And in the pandemic, it was a godsend because, do you know what? The compass, what we finally realised, and it's taken people far too long to realise this, people are going to talk about health, whether you've got doctors or professionals or experts there or not. People will talk about it, look at the vaccine, the anti-vax, all these kind of conversations that happen. So let's have doctors there to kind of dispel myths, to kind of manage and, and kind of bring a, a sense of calm and reality to the conversation that happens. And, and, and I also I'm a big believer that no one owns health. It is not our right as doctors to kind of shield this information or, or feel that we, you know, we shouldn't be talking about this public. No, that's not true. Health is for everyone. And, and, I, and I feel that education, if you want to prevent, reduce heart attacks in the country, if you want to reduce diabetes, if you want to reduce suicides, your number one tool to do that is education. Education is more powerful than any pill. Because if you can teach people about these things and also more importantly how to avoid them happening you save a fortune in in in, in bills for the nhs yeah. and you just prevent them happening in the first place i mean it it, it, it we, we have to shift as a society to think this has got to be the way that we do things and yeah and there's a huge change and now you know i would there's I, I don't see or hear many doctors who go oh gosh you know why is he doing that or whatever most people i think would agree that it's generally a good thing that i raise awareness about the things I do, that I do the things that I do. And I'm glad to see medics as a whole kind of opening up to that idea and realising that there is a power in social media that we can use it for good. It can be harnessed for good. You're absolutely right. Well, there's a reason that Boris asked you to go and talk to him while he was still in residence at number 10. And I think you've just proved it, Alex. You're so passionate. You're so driven. You're so committed. And you're you're smart. And I wish you nothing but success with whatever... Uh, path you carve out for yourself next but I do know that it will be one that has not been yet well travelled because that is pretty much your form and um, continued success thank you a huge thanks to my guest this week the incredible Dr Alex George you can listen to his new podcast Stompcast wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget grab a copy of his brand new book A Better Day Your Positive Mental Health Handbook available in all good bookshops now. And if you want more great chat with more incredible guests, then why not head over to our back catalogue where you'll find episodes with Stacey Solomon and Joe Swash, Laura Whitmore, Sarah McDermott, Arika Johnson, Vicky Patterson, Kate Lawler, Josie Gibson, Pete Wicks, Emily Attack, Vernon Kay, Brian Dowling, Georgia Toffolo, Reverend Kate Botley, and so many more. My thanks to Ben Robbins and the Yahoo Studios team who produced the show with me. Editing is by Andy Agson, and our music comes courtesy of Andy Bell. I'll be back next Friday with more guests. Until then, thank you as always for your company. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. <laughs> 